0: to the coach 's rising podcast i 'm joel in today 's conversation, I am joined by bio Kamalafe, and I am delighted to have him on the podcast. This is actually a conversation from this summit we hosted in summer earlier this year, and we are going to be exploring many of the deep beliefs that are baked into our collective culture. Bio is a master of disruption. <laughs> Uh, of taking many of these cherished notions of we, that we have of what it is to be human and to make progress and to begin to turn them upside down, to question them. So today we'll be exploring hypo-subjects. Timothy Morton's work will be exploring the decentralization of humans, how our heritage in the West can coddle this sense of hyper-individuality, and we'll be exploring how the world is more than story In the summit we called this one a conversation from the future because for me that's kind of where bio is speaking from if you don't know bio's work then i highly recommend you check him out because bio is a companion a guide for our times he's a widely celebrated international speaker teacher intellectual author of two books these wilds beyond our fences letter to my daughter on humanity's search for home and another book we will tell our own story the lions of africa speak he is a founder and elder of the emergence network and chief host of the widely popular online offline we will dance with mountains festival series where bio curates an earthwide project for the recalibration of our ability to respond to civilizational crisis a project framed within a material feminist, post humanist, post activist ethos and inspired by Yoruba indigenous cosmologies. I really recommend you check out Bio's work further, and his website is a great place to, to go. It's really beautifully made, and there's a lot in there net. All right, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Biookomalafe. So, bio, it's wonderful to be with you again, brother. And uh, you know, we, our paths meet every few years, it feels like, and I'm <laughs> I'm just really delighted we're here again together. How are you today?
1: I am well, thank you, brother. And and yes, I think our paths should connect more often than the blue moon, you know, blue moon phenomenon. It presently is, but yes, um, I'm I'm well. My family is doing well. We suffered a. Uh, very um, tragic death in our family um, recently, and we're we're working through that. It is very difficult, but um, there, there is even at the uh, foot of a volcanic eruption, there is there's still fertility, there's still hope, and and life unexpected. So we're living mm-hmm. after the fact, and. And working through dense materialities we're here in short and yeah. thank you for yeah. this conversation and the invitation
0: yeah well you know my my heart goes to you and your family in these times and yeah uh, um just reminds me of the importance of community in these times yeah. I think um, because yeah. uh, perhaps collectively we're also being very challenged right now and so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really inspired by the way you, you're your, your writing and the way you've been thinking and um, challenging the ways that I hold what the world is and what it is to be human. And I think we'll explore that today and yeah. how that might be relevant for, you know, the audience here as coaches, people. Okay. But I, I think that word coaching is perhaps becoming too small, you know, and and. For people who are are guiding, supporting others on their own paths. So, but actually, I think uh, just let me first ask if you could introduce yourself as well, just to say a bit about you know who you are and the work you've created.
1: Uh, these are these moments are mostly uh, the most difficult, mostly the most <laughs> difficult <laughs> aspect of any <laughs> conversation I have. Introducing myself. Um, You know my name already. I am in Chennai. Most of my day is with my family, my son, Kea, my daughter, Alethea, my dear wife, EJ, whom you know and have met. Um, We are, um, we cook, we wash dishes, we play, we dream. Um, When I'm not doing these things, I write and speak and do some kind of work that I have decided to call trans public intellectualism, which is something different from the tradition, the Aristotelian tradition of speaking truth to power, right? Instead of speaking truth to power, I find that truth could actually, the speaking of truth to power often plays into the algorithms of colonial capture, because voice is Voice is secreted not by individuals, but but by territories. Um, so, um, I think of myself and the work that I find myself called to do as being situated at the edges, at the watery, fluid edges of possibility, of glimpses of new things and new ways of thinking. Some kind of trickstery trope. So. That's what I do. I, I I write. I speak. I travel. I have created, with the help of wonderful others, an organization called the Emerges Network. Um, I teach in universities. Uh, what else? I think I'll stop there. <laughs> I could go well, on, but I'll stop. Yeah,
0: there. no, I get I get that it's difficult in some ways, and I think you did a beautiful uh, job. And actually, something you said there. Uh, perhaps is like a great place to begin you know this this whole um, we're exploring at the moment uh, how uh, a kind of Eurocentric American Anglo-centric notion of what it is to be human uh, and, and this summit's about coaching what it is to develop uh, has has maybe colonized the the world or you know at least proliferated around the world and how there is, there are other perspectives, marginalized perspectives that are, um, are coming into the center more. I don't know if you agree with that, actually, maybe you might not, but that. Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, and that, that, coaching has kind of been born out of this, you know, modernist Eurocentric <laughs> worldview perhaps, or maybe it's somebody said to me, maybe it's been a response to that. Uh, right. A challenge to that. But um I'm just curious if you could maybe speak to what how, how you are making sense of the world right now, if you are, even if that's maybe the right phrase, but how are you making sense of what's unfolding in the, the world right now and, and what we're being invited
1: to, to, to question deeply and maybe let go of? Well, I, I just put a piece on Facebook. I write regularly through my website. And because I have a considerable followership on Facebook, I post there regularly or twice a week, I guess. And I just wrote about something tangentially related to the images just released by NASA Mm -hmm. from the James Webb um, telescope, which is now celebrated, right? Because of the unprecedented detail about the universe that it grants us access to. And and I wrote about story in this post I'm referring to. I wrote about story as not being foundational or central to how the world works. You know, because there is a very sticky perception that the universe is made up of story, right? That the universe is reducible to story. And I find that troubling because the implications are that the universe is fundamentally intelligible. And if it's fundamentally intelligible and accessible, then that re-centralizes us as storytellers, right? And it also places the burden of social transformation on human agents, right? Who are now being invited to tell the story of the new age In this, you know, to disappoint the civilizational impasses of modernity, right? Um, I I think that's, you might call it Eurocentric, social constructivist. It, It coddles the human individual and lies too firmly and borrows too securely from the traditions of enlightenment that start analysis from human individuals and what humans are doing with the world. And I feel that the world is more than story, that the world spills be, be, beyond stories, beyond systems in forms of glitches, right? right. The, that the world is not just story, it is muteness, it is silence, that the world is not just system, it is glitch, that the world is not just image, it is caricature, that the world is not just map, it is terrain. And that the world is not just world, it is unheard of, it kicks back, right? It, it is composed of assemblages that exceed the human. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm thinking about how story, you know, this is not to dismiss storytelling, but, but we have to situate story as part of how the world unfolds, not the, not the central engine that moves the world, so to speak. There isn't a central engine. The world moves, right? And stories move along with the world. Um, But I wrote this and I put it side by side with one of those pictures coming from the telescope uh, to kind of frame an invitation to silence, you know, to insanity, if you will, poetically speaking the kind that is probably at the root of our sacred our sacred traditions right when something penetrates the story that is so blinding and shocking that it causes us to causes us to fall silent right we can no longer speak the eloquence of a gasp now becomes the machine of continuity so it, it we are slain or swayed by these you know by by the universe in its rapturous beauty ugliness i don't want to i don't want to centralize beauty as if that's what the universe is about it is also ugly it is harmonious and it is chaotic right? it is monstrous and it's angelic you, you cannot take one part and forget the other um so that's the way i'm i'm dealing with and working with the world today the world that exceeds story the world that is inviting a different kind of responsivity to the issues of our time that may call for us to fall. You know what I mean, brother? To fall, to be, to be slain, so to speak, to be defeated. In the words of Ryoka, right, to be defeated over and over again. And as I look at these images, I don't know, there's something about the offer of unprecedented detail that is suspicious to me. Like, here you go, something else for your consumption. And then NASA tweets this video of Coldplay. I love Coldplay. I love their band. I love their music. But Coldplay is singing in a concert. And the new images that have just been published blaring, so to speak, in the background. And people are jumping with their phones and stuff. And I'm, and I'm wondering about how this unprecedented detail feeds into the algorithms of human centrality <laughs> right so let me go ahead I'll stop there for you
0: yeah I love it because you know again when we speak I feel that that tricks the archetype, what you know it pulling at the way the notions I hold about the world itself and you know I can even see how this summit in a way is is there's like a um, and then we we were very careful not to try to you know, we thought about oh, we call it the future of coaching. You know, and they're like, no, we don't want. That's we don't want to try and define what the future of something is. It's more an invitation into this moment itself to perhaps uh, enter into a different mode of relationship with this moment, so that something might open up. Um, mm. And anyway, so so I'm I'm uh, I, I guess that's the question I have for you is like what what opens up for you when we, we take storytelling out of the and hum, hum, you know, anthropocentric view of, of the world, like humans at the top of, or the center, what, what does that open up? Because just, just to say, um, you know, even when you start to say like being defeated over and over again, I, I like that because in a way that's how I feel like my life is at the moment. You know, I can feel like my old, my old, the old ways of like being on top of life and, you know, the sense of certainty that I felt uh, that's kind of like it's gone. And I keep trying to find ground. And in some ways there is a new ground opening up, but it's not the old place. And, um, and, and, and inside of it, there is a sense of being defeated again and again. So I'm really Mm -hmm. curious about that notion and, this sense of like, yeah, again, coming back to now, like, what what opens up if we if we take the humans out of the center and 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 storytelling out the out of the center.
1: Well, one thing that is sure to happen, or is likely to happen, is boanthropy. <laughs> you have to. That's a good word. I will elaborate. Me- <laughs> <laughs> I threw I threw that curveball because I knew I I knew I wanted to laugh at my curveball. Um, boanthropy is becoming cow or when a man becomes oxen, you know, mm. ox-like or like a cow. And, I, and, I, and I'm throwing boanthropy into the mix, uh, not just to juice things up, um, but, but because I'm reminded of the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the King Nebuchadnezzar II, who was the second king of Babylon, the neo babylonian empire from 600 bc to 500 bc i guess um and in the biblical texts he is described as waking up one morning and just glorifying himself basically seeing i guess he woke up and went to the balcony and was just again slain by his genius like look at what i've done like come on guys look at Look at this, look at, look at me, look at how glorious I am, look at the empire, the hanging gardens, look at the things I built with my hands. And it is said, or it is written rather that the gods heard this and punished him by sending him to live with animals for seven years. So he became like a cow, like oxen, he ate grass. Right And it was a divine gesture of humility, right like a falling down to earth in some senses, I actually think that it was a blessing, right, just in the same way the interruption of the building of the Bab- Bab- um, the tower of Babel in the book of Genesis in the, in the biblical text was a gift, maybe a gift of Confucian um, and, and maybe that's the way that I relate with story. Um, again, not to dismiss story, but to decenter story. Think about the pandemic and think about the service and the force of plot, right? The engines of plot pushing us towards this notion that we were on track to create a better world, to do something, you know, with the world. 2020 is around the corner, magical year. Let's do something with it. And all our plot devices could not have anticipated this tiny seemingly infinitesimal critter stealing into the economy of our reasoning and upending everything, all our plans, our stories just fell asunder, right? It was now no more planes, no more oil. Uh, (laughs) I remember reading um, and seeing videos of animals on the streets. The idea that the world exceeds story is the invitation to consider that Uh, story centralizes in some senses, but the world is more than that imperative of centrality. The world has multiple agencies. It is not just human agents that are, you know, in the center of the room. We are crowded, if you will, populated by many others with their own services, with their own mute agencies, with their own microbial activisms, right? And so to insist that we have it all together, is to live within modern civilization. That is part of the effective acculturation of living in a city. That I can eventually have it all together. I can amass knowledge to myself. I can know things. I could get an education, a PhD, and a post PhD, if you will. I could read and read and read. It is traditionalist humanist education, the the idea that I can, or thinking rather, that that that. I am self-evident, and I am not indebted in any way to ecology, to architecture, to the world around us. But I, I think, you know, I was just speaking a while ago about the how suspicious I am about the offer of unprecedented detail, right? You with, The question I was asking as I was thinking about that just before I came on this beautiful conversation was, um, where is the devil in this detail, right? Which devil is lurking here? And, and is disturbing the message of progress that is, I guess, transmitted in this time that we are furthering our agency beyond the reaches that we, are, that we know, um, that we're familiar with and we're becoming this cosmic species. Where is the devil here that is laughing and mocking that notion? That we are bigger than we think we are, (laughs) right? So, yeah,
0: it it reminds me of like my own journey around my spiritual practice, where like if there's any sense of hubris that develops in my practice, which it does from time, you know, like oh, uh, this is uh, I've I've broken through to some you know some special place, and and then you know something will come in and. And dislodge that sense of hubris of accompl- of accomplishment in some way, yeah.
1: Um,
0: and I, I just wonder if, like this notion of hypo subjects, you know, like Timothy Morton's work, yes. like is is interesting here. As you talk about, uh, you know, the, the the decentralization of humans and and um, the world coming in, these events coming in, could is that you know, do you relate to that notion of hypo subjects and? Uh, if so, could you say like what it what they are and how that, yeah, how you relate to that idea?
1: That is such a useful segue. that's why i that's why I love speaking with you, brother. It, that's a very useful thing to bring up at this point because when I think of um the hypo subject in Mortonian terms or the in the way that I understand it, the invitation to fall down to to descend, right, it's, a, it's what the Greeks might call a katabasis, to go into the earth, right. I'm thinking about 45,000, 42,000 years ago, as is the story of certain scientists coming from New Zealand, when they examined some trees, and they noticed that this time scale that I'm speaking about, around 42,000 years ago, there was a cosmic event of some kind, and at that moment, too, there were also images of unprecedented details, you see. Maybe not a NASA, but the skies were replete with, you know, displays of cosmic fury. Um, it's as if the sky was churning and coddling and curdling, rather, and ripping apart. Because I think cosmic rays made it into the Earth and burnt through our atmosphere, burning landscapes and making it untenable for life, right? And this this event is seemingly marked in, you know, know, in trees, in some trees that are still living today. Um, Now it's said that the proto-human species of those times might have, as a result of this cosmic display of power, Descended into the earth. And this is the reason why we have cave art, right? Because cave art also, you know, mushroomed around this same period, around this time of fire on the mountain. It cave art, you know, started to show up at that time as well. So I think of the hyposubjective as the onto fugitive, as, as an invitation to what I might call at the risk of someone rolling his or her eyes, ontological apostasy, right? It's like a metabolic rift, a disabling transversal event or crack that drives us not into the highway where we triumphantly continue on our way, but deep into postures of humility, where we learn to listen, Again, where we, learn to, where we learn to play with our monstrosity, where we learn to inquire, to situate ourselves, ourselves in a world that has never been apart from us. So this is what the hypo subject is granted access to. Uh, just like people living in favelas in Brazil know that the things you dump on the ground are actually food, right? Food does not come from the shopping mall. That's such an impoverished idea. Food comes from everywhere. And I've worked with chefs and people in favelas in Brazil, for instance, who would take banana peels or the shavings of orange peels and make it into soap and food, respectively. Right? It is. It, this is the hypo subject, thinking in a zigzag way, where thought is doing something different that a highway cannot produce.
0: Yeah, beautiful examples. And... Um How, how can we open to like, I mean, again, is this even the right question? Yeah. Like, you know, but how, how, um, how might we begin to, I mean, is the question like, can we, can we consciously participate with these, uh, with these hypo subjects, uh, in a way that, that, you know, um, yeah. Again, like uh, I, I, I'm watching the language I use around appropriate. You know, make making us a better person or something. But, but is right. is that the invitation that we can consciously participate with these? Is it more that they're happening anyway, and that it it doesn't really matter? You know, is there a practice? I'm guessing. You know, that we right. can engage in. Yeah, that's the yeah. simple question I was trying to reach for. Yeah. It,
1: it it is it is simple and it is complex simultaneously. the 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 way that I would come to this is to is to say, first of all, that maybe not first of all, but among, in the middle of so many other considerations that I cannot voice at this moment, is to say that we are um, constantly beleaguered and haunted by, by things that we habitually exclude from the streams of consciousness that we call the human subject. And we know we, we've learned how to do it, you know, to compartmentalize the world, to, to put pathology in its place, to put shame in its place, to put shadows in its place and to keep business as usual. The circuitry of the human subject, especially the human subject conditioned by the city, is largely clear, you know, make a name for yourself, gather stuff to yourself, get married, blah, 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 live, die, you know, that's how to, that's the way of the world, get educated, get a degree, stuff like that, to varying degrees. But it's not quite clear when we really stop to consider some of the details that, that we are, you know, if, let me put it this way. When, when I speak about cracks, I often theorize events that are so ontologically disruptive that they throw us off, no handles. We're not able to think again. It's like thought penetrates the room. And suddenly we are upended by this explosion, almost a Hiroshima-like explosion that changes us and turns us into monsters, right? When people hear me speak about cracks, they immediately imagine a huge, spectacular event like the pandemic or like an extraterrestrial slave ship dipping through the clouds, coming to steal human bodies, right? They, they think about these huge things. And I like to Im- invite them to think about my son, for instance, and my son's autism, right? That, that is a crack. When cracks to me are not spectacular events necessarily, they are sites of excess where the world cannot contain itself, where the designations of modernity, the way it names things, Joel is white and Bayer is black, where things spill out of their containers and become something we don't expect, right? So I feel that cracks are invitations for us to practice um, different kinds of inquiry. This inquiry I call chasmography. (laughs) (laughs) Chasmography, like conducting an ethnography of a crack, right? Like what do you do when the sun disables you? When, what do you do when your son disables you? What do you do in the communal intensity of a disability? Or when you've sprouted tentacles? Or when you don't fit in? How do you stay with failure? How do we stay with the failure of our species? How do we stay with the failure of... Climate chaos and all of that, you know, racial injustice. How do we stay with this failure without rushing to put a band-aid with workshops that teach sensitivity to police officers and stuff like that? So we can just march on with business as usual. How do we open ourselves, and be a little bit more vulnerable and fragile to other messages of our time? That's the question of cosmography. And because I cannot expand, you know, expatiate on Expatiate on the um, on the method as as it is emerging in my practice and, and talk and theorizing. I would say, in sum, that cosmography is about deep inquiry. And by deep inquiry, I don't mean going deep. I mean it's about decentering ourselves as we conduct research, as we ask new questions with the world. It's about inviting others to share their failures and to situate ourselves in that cartography of loss together in the hopes that we might perhaps glimpse a new political imaginary by doing so. I will quickly say this, that cosmography is not about changing the world. It's just about holding space for different differences to sprout.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm so inspired. And uh, I guess like I wonder uh, what kinds of questions we might ask it, it feels like there's an invitation into to um being becoming aware of how we're we're kind of like ontologically designed by our world i mean i feel like that's yeah. permeating yeah. this whole conversation you know like yeah like for example uh around our experiences of repeatedly failing
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: like and how that's a, a bad thing you know mm-hmm. um and that that. We're not being successful if we're if we're failing, and so um, like it, it's kind of like Matrix-like in its invitation is to to notice these deep ontological notions that we've privileged, and then there's something on the other side, or, or other, many things on the other side which have been excluded or put into the darkness, and so um, yeah, I guess I'm curious about the idea of activism as well so so this question of like what questions could we ask like it, can we be specific about that about what yeah. questions we might ask and then this notion of like post activism as well because yeah just to just to add a bit more like i think you know a lot of coaches i know can be idealistic and they care about a better world and i think that's that's you know natural and Um, And at the same time, like, how can we how can we question our notions about that better world and how it might be achieved so that so that, yeah, something may be able to open up that actually Mm. is wanting to come in, which is more sustainable and inclusive and and generative. So, Mm. uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'll just see where you take that. Um, There's not really a question in it, but yeah.
1: There, there's a story I tell about two monks walking by a river, riverbank. They're walking down the river and they suddenly hear a voice crying for help in the river. Someone is drowning. One of the monks takes off his apparel and jumps into the water and saves. Do you know this story? Saves, saves the drowning person. You don't know the story. Good. No, I like it no. when someone doesn't know the story I'm about to tell. <laughs> I'm in the process of telling makes it more interesting to me um so drags this person out resuscitates the person and they continue on their way marveling at you know the event that has just happened but they are still in conversation about that event when they hear another voice surprisingly calling for help and there is another person drowning wow this seems to be a, a day for drowning so the same guy removes his dress again, jumps into the water, drags a person out, rinse, repeat. Literally rinse and repeat because down a few feet forward, another person is drowning. Um, now at this time, the monk doesn't take off his dress, doesn't jump into the water. He takes off the opposite direction, running at full speed. And his, you know, his partner is like, where are you going? There's someone drowning. I can't swim. You're supposed to jump in there and save them. And this person shouts back, I'm going to see where they're falling in to stop them from falling in, right? To stop them from jumping into the water or something because there has to be something else that is at work here um, to account for these seemingly disconnected events. I tell that story to signal... um, Something that I started to notice in my earliest training as a psychologist, that healing people in the ways that I thought I was actually healing people, healing people is not enough, right? Saving people seems to be a second order problem, right? Because if you heal people, if your clinical alliance produces generative positive results, what about the society, the world that this person comes from, right? If we put them back into that same social context, wouldn't that just reinforce the same troubling dynamics that led them to my office in the first place? And so the question, when you ask about questions, brother, I might put it this way, and this one is making rounds, and it's at the heart of what I call post-activism, that what if the way we respond to the crisis, what if the way we respond to crisis is a crisis? What if we are embedded within algorithms of actions and reactions that only go so far to reinforce a terrain of behavior where solutions are already in, in league with the problems they're supposedly cancelling and where problems are already calling forth to the solutions as if, you know, they're born from the same, uh, or cut from the same cloth. What if, What if we are, behavior is not ours? What if we act with the world? What if we're acting with other forces, other arrangements, other containments? So that is the, burden of post-activism to ask such seditious questions and then as a result to seek cracks and breakaways and breakthroughs and rifts and you know anything that might allow us sneak out of a plantation and I use the plantation often in making real this way of acting that is repetitive and toxic in its cyclicity You know, the work is to sneak out of this plantation and refuse to grant it our labor. So this is the work of fugitivity. This is the work of marinage, This is the work of thinking differently. But we are not gonna do that, Joel, by sitting back and reflecting, right? When I, for instance, say the times are urgent, let us slow down. Most people imagine, for instance, that I'm saying, let us sit back and reflect, as if reflection, is some kind of transversely novel thing that would just immediately produce new thoughts when we get the bigger picture. Yes, bringing in new data might decontextualize an image and produce new images, but it is mostly the case that we will, that our reflections only repeat the symptoms that we're trying to leave behind. So I like to speak in terms of diffraction, like, Slowing down is a function, not of reflection, but of diffraction. Where diffraction is about zigzagging through the world. is about meeting other allies. It's about holding at bay to the extent that we can our presumptions about how the world works so that we can be visited by other ideas and other influences and other agencies.
0: Mm. Yeah, really inspiring. Um... Yeah, which is like what I feel is happening to me right now. And when we when we get the chance to speak, and yeah, there's something in what you say there about coming together with others. Do you do you find that there are more and more people that are interested in this kind of um, inquiry of of slowing down together? Yeah, and and because you know, I think. I know you speak about sanctuaries as well and and like how can we find a sense of purpose and a sense of home in these times yeah. and uh, I think because you know like that's what I can feel here now as, as we speak you know it's like it's there's a there's there's a sense of what is it It's like um, there's a kinship and, 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 and love and and um, like mutual support. You know, mm-hmm. like inspiration, and mm-hmm. um, that's meaningful to me. And so, I guess I'm, yeah. I said, like, is, do you find more and more people are are like drawn to this, and and that community yes. and sanctuary and home is is in this meeting?
1: Yes, I think there is a lot of exhaustion with politics as usual. It might be helpful to frame it this way that the epistemologies, the philosophies, the archetypes, the gods of the familiar, the gods of this modern ecosystem that have granted us settlement and place in a placeless world are running out of steam. They're running out of power, right? Ed Young from The Atlantic wrote recently that we're now in the pandemic scene, right? There are so many scenes these days, the Anthropocene. I have written and I still write about the Afro scene. Um, and Donna Haraway writes about the plantation scene, the capital scene, the Tulu scene. And now we have the pandemic scene and there's a lot of stuff there. You know, it's it's it seems inevitable now. We have to make do in a world of viruses and super bacteria and brain eating algae or no amoeba. <laughs> Who knows? that my brain eating algae? Um, but, and you know, one of some of my students were just, I was in class, was it yesterday? You no, know, on Monday. And some of my students were just telling me that, yes, was it in Missouri that they found brain eating amoeba? And now there's monkeypox. And now the coronavirus is still waltzing with us, right? It hasn't left the dance floor. It's not going anytime soon. It has bought the building, Joelle. Um, So it it seems now we have to make do with that arrangement, with, with that world, a world that exceeds us, a world that is more than human story or human imperatives. Where was I going with this? Remind me, brother. I tripped off too far. What was yeah. the question
0: again? Remind me. Uh, we were speaking about um, like, are there more and more people interested in this and, and, yes, uh, yes, and yes, coming yes, into a yes. place of home and sanctuary? Yes. And,
1: That's yeah. where I was going with this. Thank you. So I feel that um, this exhaustion is showing up in terms of people being driven to places of strange inquiry, right? And I have had the privilege of opening up such spaces—international, um, global spaces—that doesn't feed into or derive from Americal centrism's or Eurocentrism's, right? Like this is how we refer to people. These are the pronouns you should use. This is I- identity politics must be at the forefront of everything we talk about. No, like what I'm witnessing is that people are. Asking questions that, or hiding questions that do not have spaces in the politics of the moment, right? That what if identity is a lot more awkward than we think it is, right? And and what if this this heavy metaphysics of presence that invests so assuredly in the notion of identity and isolated individuals is already part of the epistemology of colonial settlement, then where do we go with our critique if we're already stuck in the building? People are asking questions about justice as well, right? Like we're seeking justice. It seems like we're climbing a pillar of ants or caterpillars only to arrive at the top and realize there's nothing there. Like if justice is already secreted by the city, then it's only granted to citizenship. Right, and most of us are not allowed access into what it means to be a citizen. But that, while that might mean let's let's prop up more inclusive politics, more representational politics, politics that is based on the algorithms of diversity, there is still the question about what it means to sit at the table on a Titanic ship that is heading for an iceberg. Right, what does it mean to be? at the forefront of disaster, to have equal share of a carcinogenic pie, right? Why would I want equal share of something that will kill me? So I think we're, we're asking edge-like questions, dangerous questions these days, or rather the terrain is shaping itself to be more available for such explorations. And what is happening is that, you know, one of the things that I talk about and theorize is sanctuary, making sanctuary where I think of sanctuary not as a place of safety for the people who come, but that we are part of the establishment. We're part of a settled way of thinking. What sanctuary is for, as opposed to what it was made for in medieval times, is not for us. It is for the queer, strange idea, the fugitive idea, the errant thought that bursts into our midst, but we try to push out because it doesn't fit into our schema. So the practice of making sanctuary is about staying with disability or staying with the trouble as Donna Haraway would say it. Like how do we make room for the monster without trying to chop up its limbs and dress it up cosmetically to look more like us? How do we actually stay with this prickly hedgehog like Frankensteinian beast that has burst into our settlement? Do we push it out or do we listen to the monster and allow it to enact its agency with risk, I might add, but with also generative results. That's the question. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And I can imagine this is just intuitive, but if we find ourselves more in our identity more in relationship than in the individual, that somehow that that would become more possible, you know, that we could come into sanctuary. In that way, and um, and and allow these ideas, these uh, you know, these things you just named to be there. Um, there's two questions, and they're a bit different. And um, I'll just see where you take it. And like one, one is like, do you have hope? And is that the, even the right thing? You know, because maybe it's like, <laughs> okay. oh, here we go again. You know, we're trying to like latch on to hope. You know, and everything that 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 brings up, but I'm just curious about that. And then the second one is like, I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but I'm like, what invitations might you make to coaches who are, you know, uh, meeting others in these times and helping them connect to themselves and to emerge, I would say emerge rather than um, and develop. Um, so, so that's the two questions. Like w- do you have hope or is that the wrong way to look at it? And Mm -hmm. the second one, is like, what would you, what invitations might you make specifically to to coaches? Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Knowing that
0: you're not a coach and you might not know very much about the field of coaching. I I don't, don't know how much you know about it. So
1: not very much, but maybe what I might say, will say might apply. We'll see see how it goes. Um, I close my eyes because I'm trying to recall the name of that ancient City that was overwhelmed by volcanic eruption and froze its citizens. It starts with a P. Uh, like I should a, know this as well. Um, haunted, eerie, strange—you know, deathly figures. Um, yeah, you, it's you the top of I, my, tongue, is, uh, on my tongue. On my tongue, tongue. I not it's, <laughs> it's not Vesuvius. Uh, no, no, no. no it's okay, anyway, more, never mind. I think I read an article about this this city because it kind of cryo froze them into space, into into their, their, their spaces. It, it was a flash thing, right? They were caught doing other things and this hell descended and just preserved them so to speak for all time. Um, and I know reading this article led me to just start thinking about how we often are oblivious to the dancing animacy of a world that is, like I said, more than our stories. That's many times we are are perched precariously at the edges of disaster, but we are so committed to our own ideas of safety and progress that we stay put. Right. it's it, The story of this volcanically um, destroyed city, which we cannot both remember the name of, um, is similar to, to the fabled um, death of the Roman civilization by barbarians, right? At least one theory. Um, I mean, some of these things I can barely recall in conversation right now, but... I think some of the theories out there suggest that even right up to the end, you know, when power was broken, there were still Roman generals who felt, nah, the Roman empire still remains. We can depend upon this institution, even as they were invaded by something more than the story of Roman progress or Roman supremacy. I feel that we are in such situations these days. We are, we don't know what's coming, brother. We're we're too committed to our language. We're too committed to our ideals and to our images. But more importantly for my point here is that we think and behave and feel territorially. You know, this is something that is beginning to, spill into popular consciousness with the relative success of disciplines like eco-psychology, right? And depth psychology and eco-feminism and material Um, eco-criticism. The idea is that feelings are not individual products. They are kind of territorial, assemblages. I like to say that we don't feel. Instead, feelings enlist us, right? It's like a um, pheromonal um, trail of ants. It's like that secretion is the cartography. Even though it feels like it's secreted from the ants, there is a way that it is more than epiphenomenon, and it actually uses the ants, right? I feel in the same way that hope is a product of our settlement. There's almost something Winston Churchillian about the imperative to keep on hoping, right? And that's good, right? We love stories of hope. We love stories of triumph. But I think the world is too promiscuous to stay true to those stories. And there are moments when even hope gets in the way of us seeing and being sensuously alive to what the world is doing so that we want to encourage and stay with the animacy and generosity of hopelessness as well. Now this is not, to, I don't wanna think in terms of binary, like let's get rid of hope. There's no way to get rid of hope. If the story of hope is replete in, and you know, profoundly involved in all the things that we do. But there is a sense in which we kind of pathologize hopelessness. And, I, and I'm saying that seeing through the lenses of demise, might grant us access to different ways of seeing that hoping all the time may not allow us to have access to. So maybe, maybe running up the hill or running up down the river or up the river to see where the bodies are falling in might be some kind of an invitation to contemporary coaches, right? That maybe it's not enough to get people productive again. Maybe it's not enough to get people successful, stabilized. Maybe the instability of this moment is a coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to be canceled by coaches everywhere. No, but but more, may, maybe the instability, disturbance, the trouble of this time, maybe that's also a coach. And maybe you want to listen to the trouble and stay with the trouble. So that coaching then becomes a communal, irreducibly communal affair of friendship in times of trouble, of companionship in times of burning. That how do we support each other, hold each other's hands as the world unravels? How do we learn to cultivate a fidelity with the world? How do we perform and co-create locally relevant locally resonant inquiry that allows us to be sensuously alive to what the world is doing. Um, I gave a commencement speech to the graduates of Pacifica Graduate Institute last year. This was for the 2020 class and the 2021 class. And I celebrated with them. They had completed their PhDs and master's degrees. And I said, what if success is a kind of failure today, right? Um, and this might not be a good thing to tell people who have just succeeded, but I would like you to, <laughs> I would like you to lean into failure and what failure might be teaching us today. It's probably the same thing I would say to, the, to these uh, wonderful coaches who are listening that, um, there are many other imperatives at large beyond, you know, our vocations. And maybe this is a time to stop being impervious to these other voices and agencies at large and to listen deeply for what might want to happen.
0: Yeah, I feel joy in my heart as you speak. Uh,
1: interestingly... You feel joy, I feel dread. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. Yeah, you know, there's just something very beautiful about your words, you know, and that touches me. Yeah, so I, I just want to say thank you bio thank you brother for yeah for being here and sharing yourself so generously and yeah i'm really really pleased to be sharing this with people and i I do want to uh ask where we can find out more about your work you've got one of the most beautiful websites as well i love it
1: uh... thank you to my brother omar um for designing that Website, yes, website is there. You can type in Google. There's a lot of videos on YouTube. And I'm also psychedelically available. Even though I've never done psychedelics before, I think beyond the doing of the psychedelics, there is, we meet each other in strange ways, dreams and stuff. And I'm not making things up. We've, um, there are conversations happening beyond this isolated body right that I, that i've been privy to so um we'll meet in strange ways other than the internet beautiful
0: yeah and just
1: yeah thanks yeah um what what is your website address bio as well didn't share it's bioacomalafe.net yeah here we are we're at the end
0: of the podcast just a heads up again if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create then